Welcome to Climify, the podcast that connects climate scientists and design educators together so that we can help combat our climate crisis in our classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. This episode is brought to you by Renourish. Renourish is your one-stop online resource for sustainable design and systems thinking strategies and tools for the graphic designer. You can learn more about Renourish on their website at re-nourish.org, or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook at Renourish. Welcome to Climify. I'm Eric Benson, and I'll be your host this season as we talk to climate experts from all over the world to help us design educators fight the climate crisis in our classrooms. And yes, I'm also a design educator. I've been teaching for 15 years here at the University of Illinois. But even if you're not a design educator listening to this show, there's so much useful information jam-packed in each that you too can learn how to do your part to help reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Today on Climify, we're joined by Katie Patrick. Katie Patrick is an Australian-American environmental engineer, designer, and author of How to Save the World, How to Make Changing the World the Greatest Game We've Ever Played, and hosts the podcast How to Save the World, where she investigates academic research in environmental psychology. She specializes in what she calls Fitbit for the Planet Design, which means applying data-driven gamification and behavior change techniques to environmental problems. Katie has worked on environmental gamification projects with NASA, JPL, Stanford University, UNEP, Google, the University of California, Magic Leap, and the Institute for the Future. Katie is the founder of UrbanCanopy.io, a map-based application that uses satellite imaging of urban heat islands and vegetation cover to encourage urban greening and cooling initiatives. She is also the co-founder of Energy Lollipop, a Chrome extension and outdoor screen project that shows the electric grid CO2 emissions in real time. You can find more about Katie at katiepatrick.com, on Twitter at katiepatrick, or on Instagram at katiepatrickhello. Well, it's wonderful to meet you, Katie. I'm excited that you're here on Climify. I want to get started and, and jump right in, uh, get down to the basics. So I want to know uh, more about who you are and uh, what you do and uh, where you do it. Okay, well, I'll just start with telling my story of like how I got here. So I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, and I was the granddaughter of these master um, German craftspeople. My grandmother was a fashion designer and my grandfather was a, a graphic illustrator. And they were very highly trained. So I grew up around this technical illustration. And I never talked about this before in my story, but now that I'm really putting myself out there as a designer, I realized how fundamental it was growing up in a household that was made of not the kind of crazy out there art, but the very structured, technically skilled um, artwork. But then in, um, 
I grew up in the, I was a child in the eighties. And so there was a lot of like Greenpeace marketing then of, we saw um, whales every night on the news, these whales getting dragged onto these Japanese whaling vessels, you know, with blood coming out of them and trees being like cut down and, you know, the big like machine, like, you know, the tree just crashing to the ground. Terrible images for a childhood, right? Yeah, and there was also these famines in um, in Ethiopia and Somalia at the time, and these uh, these harrowing pictures of these skeletal children were on the news all the time. And so, in my it was probably around the you know eight or nine years old, I found these images enormously distressing. And I'd be like, "Mommy, can we please like help save the whales? Can we get the? I heard that the dolphins get stuck in the in the tuna fish nets, you know." Uh-huh. Um, I also grew up on a on a big property out of the city, you know, with a lot of, a lot of trees and bonded very closely with nature. So my sustainability journey was kind of like cemented in those in those early years. Um, but I loved science. Was good at um, math and physics. Really, really into into understanding the, um, the the STEM journey, which led me to study environmental engineering. Went into green buildings. I thought eco cities would be cool. Why don't we build like towers with like vegetation coming off the sides and like skywalks, you know, with like the sky mangroves on the top of skyscrapers. I had these really futuristic kind of fantasies about what I could do with green buildings. But the reality is it. like I literally the only job you could get was doing energy efficiency audits in, um, like office buildings like that was like the job of being a green building engineer and I thought that was like the most boring thing I could ever do with my life I was like kill me now like measuring the kilowatt hours <laughs> oh, in no. buildings I actually found find it quite interesting now because I've got a whole new angle on it but at the time I was like never um how old so were that you during really... that time how old were you when you uh, had like I don't want to be 20 22 23 so I got a job sort of while I was still studying and that lasted for a couple of years um, but that journey was over in commercial property. It was between the age of about sort of 20, yeah, 21 and 23 years old. Um, and then I uh, started, so I started a media company. I started my first startup, which was a magazine called Green Pages and also a directory and a, and a website and videos and events. that um, was all about trying to rebrand sustainability as being really cool. So we started this like Wired magazine. I mean, it was like Wired magazine before sustainability. So it was one of the first times during that time that sustainability um, was rebranded as something that was really cool. I mean, before that time, there were no like hipster organic cafes, you know, like um, sort of expensive, really cool foods, uh, organic fashion labels. Like it was really dorky and really, it was like Birkenstocks and patchouli and, um, you know, like deep environmental scientists who went hiking and watched birds and did scientific reports. Like this whole idea of it being fashionable and stylish or boutique products like did not exist. Or it was like a turning point, a zeitgeist around that early 2000s. And so I went out on a mission to try and make that, to try and totally rebrand the image of sustainability. And there was other people around the world kind of doing that at that time. And that was a really wonderful time of like, you know, really working on creative production, going the opposite out of energy efficiency audits in buildings, super uncreative and boring to like right. a full like creative production company with like 20 full-time staff. But then everything went sort of the Silicon Valley direction of startups and technology. Um, and, you know, can you build like the next app? You know, apps were like a big deal, like nobody ever seen an app before. <laughs> uh, so you know, we were also like learning how to code, like learning how to build. MVPs. Uh, so I moved to Silicon Valley and that company ended up, even though it was successful at the time, it died, uh, moved to Silicon Valley to start over. And I became very fascinated with this idea of feedback loops because I'd been learning how to code. And I was like, why can't I show somebody like a Facebook notification if they're 
carbon emissions from their home go up over a certain level. And there were these Zynga games, you know, there's like Farmville, Zynga games. Oh, right. I remember big. Farmville. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I don't know what <laughs> happened to them all, but like there were these Zynga was like the big thing. And I'm like, well, can't we build little things into like Facebook that show you like, oh, this is how much water you used in your shower or, you know, like tracking. Could we track the, um, the amount of petrol, we call it gasoline in America, in cars? Mm-hmm. And I was like looking for these data feeds and I was like, there are no data feeds anywhere. Like I literally, I cannot get an API or a data feed for my own kilowatt hours for the carbon emissions of the grid, for the amount of tree cover in my city, for the air pollution on my street. My car doesn't even know. Well, I didn't have a car at the time, but all the cars right. don't even know how much petrol is goes into them. Like if you drive your car for a year, it doesn't tell you, it tells you how many miles you went, but it doesn't tell you like the CO2 of what no, you're doing yeah. week probably on week. purpose right probably on purpose they don't want you to know no i just don't think i think a lot of these things nobody's asked for like they just haven't yeah. nobody's been thinking about this stuff and then i was like oh my god this is basically this um this lack of environmental data feedback loops like i can get an api for anything for like stripe you know to get to process payments like for google uh clicks you know google analytics you can tap into their api you can tap into all these apis and get all this data you want to measure the planet there is just like hardly anything. It is so backward. And then I just had this big epiphany moment that was like, this is the rest of my life. This is what I'm going to be devoted to. Yeah, <laughs> satellite data, sensors, get this data, try to build APIs that can get these real-time feedback loops of data. And then, you know, so people, whether I'm designing the front-end interface or other people are, but you can actually get this data. So if you want to put a little dial or a screen next to your shower that says you know this is how many liters of water and how much carbon emissions happen from heating the water from your shower and a little light goes off or it gets a smiley face or a ding or it pings you on facebook or twitter or something like we can actually get this data to build this stuff um and that completely fascinated me so i never ended up building the startup which i came to silicon valley to do but i did a very deep intellectual dive into the theory of this type of design like i read a whole bunch of academic papers. I still read these academic papers on this design theories of, well, what happens if you show people the numbers? What happens if you show a hundred people? What happens if you compare them? How does color affect that? How real time does it need to be? What if it's a day late? What if it's a month late? What if it's on paper? What if it's electronic? Really understanding these, these theories, which led me to write the book, How to Save the World, because I accrued all this knowledge. I was like, oh, I have to share this. So when did that book so come fascinating. out? When did your book come out? I think out? it was about almost two years now. Yeah, two. a year and a half, two years. Um, and so that's what I do now. I specialize in this type of design, which I call Fitbit for the Planet design, which is it's a great name. feedback loops of data. I didn't know what else to call it. Um, nobody understood what it was. Feedback <laughs> loops of data, just like a Fitbit, showing environmental impact. So the front end user design, but also the kind of like back end technology for individual behavior but also for bigger systems change as well like it's not just about individual behaviors it's about giving whole systems of people this data to help encourage change all the way through from individual through to system and i just have to add that bit on the end because a lot of people have been coming out saying but you can't change the world with only behavior change and i was like no no no, that's not what it's all about it's really about trying to get the whole system in a, in a better direction through the disclosure of numbers um, and that's the um, close of my nutshell, long, long, big, <laughs> big, big nut, big nutshell. No, it, it, it was great. I, I want to get into your current work, but I want to backtrack just for a second, because there were two things that really stood out to me about your journey, this, this big um, nutshell, as you'd call it. 
first of all was uh, you mentioned when you were young, young growing up in Australia, you witnessed a lot of these things, these, these images stuck in your head and these things you couldn't unsee. And then you mentioned you had this epiphany once you get to Silicon Valley about what you wanna do with your life and your career, which became some of the work you're doing right now, including your book. So do you think that there, these two moments, which you mentioned, these terrible things you witnessed as a kid, and then uh, what you learned when you got to Silicon Valley, do you think, how connected were those things? Do you think both of these were just two different awakenings where you can, were committed to environmentalism or do you think they were very separate? Oh, it's an interesting way to, to put it. I don't think they were directly connected in, in any way. Like my, my childhood experiences of making me feel concerned for the planet and that was something I wanted to do central to my life. I mean, that started off pretty, pretty young. Um, and then that sort of led to, you know, one thing after another, one thing after another. And then that kind of, um, my, my revelation about feedback loops of data was quite far away in that, in that journey. I suppose that where it started was that, I mean, I've done like a whole bunch of different things in my, my career and I'm always trying to learn new things. Um, it's just created a kind of like a channel, you know, like I never deviate from environmental sustainability. It's the only thing I've ever done. It's the thing that I know well. Um, and I don't really do anything outside of that, but within that uh, channel, within that river, I mean, there's enormous, um, I mean, you can do almost anything in that. So the, and I, this is why I kind of like, I add the little um, sort of art bit at the beginning of this story mm. now when I tell it, because I've always gone into everything with this very um, hyper curious mind. Like I'm always trying to learn. I've been obsessed with learning all my life. Like I love reading papers. I love reading textbooks, audiobooks, podcasts. I'm just like this like cookie monster, like just devouring knowledge all the time. Like I'm just feeding off it. Since I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old, it was just like, ah. Um, <laughs> so when you just are constantly trying to grow and trying to learn and trying to always trying to break down this, um, trying to crack the, the nut, different nut now, um, the, different nut. the nut of like, how do you actually create change? Like, how do you do it? Like, how do you change a million people? Like, how do you change a whole bunch of roads or a whole bunch of buildings? Like, this is really hard stuff. And Honestly, nobody really knows the answer. We have ideas of how we think we can do it. And the deeper you go into that, trying to learn and study and learn and study, it reveals itself kind of like layers of the onion. You know, like at first you might think, oh, well, it's just, you know, people used to say it's the media, it's the news, you know, and then the news kind of went away and then everyone's social media, nobody says it's the media or the news anymore. Mm -hmm. Everything's kind of still the same, you know, oh, really the media. You know, like, is it people's greed? People are just greedy. And you're like, no, we don't really think so. Is it democracy? And I'm like, well, you can have a democratic process and have people vote against carbon taxes and vote for Trump. So maybe it's not democracy. Maybe if you let everyone be super democratic, everyone's just going to be like free beer, free pizza. That used to happen at university. We'd have like <laughs> student democracies and the free beer and the free pizza movement and all the anti-patriarchy feminists would freak out. They'd be like, oh my God, the free beer party. Got it, you know. Um, so you can't really necessarily blame that and so people are just trying to figure out what it is and you've just got to keep learning and keep peeling away um and that's the, just the process the intellectual curious process that brought me to this um this idea of feedbacks and behavioral psychology because i find 
that that's getting pretty close or as close as I've come to the center of the onion of what really does create change or it's the best toolkit that I've gotten to now after 20, if you add in my teens, you know, 30 years of doing this now. Well, I'm really connected to that story because I see a lot of myself in that as a, as a kid, um, I grew up with a lot of the camping and, and being outdoors and really being connected to the, the world around me and really respecting that. And then I had like a moment later in life where I was like, I have to do something to conserve this or protect this or make it better, regenerate it. So I'm really connected to that story. And I always ask myself, you know, what would 10 year old Eric think about this? I kind of bring that up, you know, and maybe it's this naivete or something, but um, I think that's sort of a guide that that little little kid is still there and that wants to, you know, save, you know, the animals or, you know, I always watch like shows about uh, Africa and the wild kingdom. And, and I was always connected to that. So I think I'm, I'm definitely uh, see a little bit of myself in your story because I was also very creative and I did the arts and drew and, and painted. So uh, I appreciate that. And I'm wondering too, because I think there's a sense of optimism there, right? That um, you have to have. And I'm wondering, uh, it seems like all your work is really rooted in that hopefulness. And where does that come from? And how do you, how do you inspire others to be as hopeful and sometimes in the, when you read some of the dire news about the climate? Well, I think my, and um, thank you. And uh, yeah, it's lovely to hear of your story as well. I think, you know, for humanity or just as people, I think we need to invest in these more altruistic, kind, sensitive and creative parts of ourselves. You know, going out, being a bully, being like, well, I'm just gonna like make money and I'm gonna pay a mortgage and I'm gonna buy a car and whatever all that stuff is. Like, I don't know, I honestly don't think it gets you that far in life. I think the more sensitive, parts of you to cultivate are the nicer ones and we should agree be, be real be real with that even if it um feels harder sometimes along the way um, it is very hard right <laughs> very yeah I mean I've been going on a journey just trying to really like ground into that like every day I'm like how do I have the best energy I can and how do I do the best creative work for the world like that's my overarching belief system sort of umbrella of how I live and I let, I honestly, I let go of everything else. I'm like money, ego, like whatever. It, How do you do that? Is, <laughs> That's Silicon hard. Valley hype machine, which is a very strong sort of sucking force that you need to get into white combinator and raise money. I mean, that's a big right. sort of cultural thing that I live in, I'm connected to. Um, and just try and let go of it and just, well, I do it very specifically, I block out time. I'm like, okay, three hours, just pure creative channeling of your essence uh into the most interesting world-changing thing you can possibly think of so it's an allocation of time yeah um and then it's also just very consciously deciding to let go of the outcome and let go of the goals and the society created goals around that uh that's just something i do i'm not necessarily pitching that as a as a good idea because it can be enormous like if you have like a, a mortgage or I mean, I have one child, maybe if you have like four children, it might be really hard to do that. Um, yeah, adult I'm okay with, yeah. I'm okay with going for a year or two without really making any money or maybe you're only making like $10,000 a year to cover the bills. Like I really don't mind doing that. Other people might struggle to do that. So I don't want to pitch it as the ultimate way of life, but it is the way that I've chosen to live that works um, for me. But, but you asked about, about hopefulness and optimism. 
I think sometimes people can misjudge my my efforts with that as just this kind of like oh let's just be like happy about the future and just be like hopeful and stuff um that's really not the lens that I'm coming from mm -hmm. the lens I'm coming from is we have this humans have this superpower of imagination we are the only creature the only animal that has this it's the one thing that distinguishes humans from other animals is that we can invent mental models of things that are going to happen and then we can plan our lives in very long term 10 years 20 years ahead and then do things now for that and the other animals can't really do that and so for us to engage in uh the enormous kind of innovation that it's going to take like we cannot change the world with just switching off the, the lights and recycling and just eating organic food. Although I do, I'm a strong believer in individual behavior change. Yes. In order to get to a new chapter of human civilization that is sustainable with the planet, we need a massive revolution in all of our civil engineering infrastructure, the way we do buildings, all of our material science, all of our transportation systems with vehicles and aircrafts and ships all of the production manufacturing of the stuff that we use the closed mm -hmm. loop type of recycling the way we uh, grow food the way we cook the way we educate people even our belief systems about we want what we want out of life and our value systems need to change like there is a massive highly technical revolution that is going to have to happen in every single industry and that is so much bigger than going to the moon or going to mars or even you know like solving cancer like people don't realize the technical complexity in this challenge and we need an epic dream to guide us to that like going to the moon is a great um sort of corollary for that because it was a big exciting highly technical dream so we need the dream of you know what would a environmentally sustainable eco-futuristic utopia world look like what would that be and then how would i play a role in that not in my individual zero waste behaviors which is nice but 10 or 20 years like if i'm going to be you know i'll probably be alive for another 40 years at least like actively like i've got 40 years to do some serious technical innovations with this feedback loop stuff that i work on like what is going to be my my investment in this this journey and when i think of these eco city visions and like what society what not society but civilization could be like what would be the next chapter i mean if you, if you look at the history of human civilization like we were really nasty there's like torture and war and abuse yeah. and it's it's kind of a pretty pretty awful story until quite recently so we're at a turning point now where we're not as violent and nasty as we were we can become this new um sort of semi-enlightened species that's all has all of our processes integrated in this deep ecological understanding of of nature that's the, the high-tech version as opposed to more of the the, the tribal low-tech version that it once was thousands of years ago and um that's an enormously inspiring sort of epic story to join so when i'm pitching this idea of like i don't use the word hope but of optimism of imagination and vision i'm trying to unlock this this epic journey that is bigger than the moon landing and to invite people to come on this multi-decade innovation um, experience or investment, a multi-decade um, investment in their own innovation in their careers to contribute to this, uh, this new world. And I think that's a, that's a much bigger and 
more serious story than just like, oh, let's be hopeful in the face of uh, no, no, climate exactly. change. So I don't want to get too, I don't want to get pigeonholed as just like, oh, let's be like, just be happy about everything like green walls, yay. There's, there's quite deep technical roots to what I, the story I'm trying to, I'm trying to say. And it's in my TED talk. Like that's what I, that's what I say in the, in the TEDx talk of why um, we need creativity and optimism to, to save the world. Well, you mentioned um, education there, and that's that's what I do. That's what a lot of our listeners to the show do for educators. And so I'm wondering what you think, um, what role educators can play in helping that achieve that mission, this whole systematic change um, through what we do in the classroom. What, what is your insights into that? Well, when I was studying environmental engineering, the way the degree was structured, I felt was really problematic and did not lend itself to this big um, vision or next chapter of civilization. Because the thing is that all environmental systems all interrelate to each other. Trees affect urban heat, which affect water runoff, which affect air pollution, which affect the kilowatt hours on the grid. And all these things are all working together. So after, I think it was my third year in environmental engineering school, I went to the head of school and I said, listen, I think we're doing this whole degree wrong. We study like <laughs> soil science and then we study um, pollution chemistry and then we study fluid mechanics and we get a textbook and our job is to learn the textbook and then we do an exam and we do like a project and they're completely discrete. Like they never are stitched together. I said, I think what we need to do is actually go on a four year project where we have to design up a completely eco, like an environmentally sustainable city. And so we start at the beginning, at the beginning of our four years. And the vision is to create a, a, a city that's completely sustainable. And then we have to start reverse engineering that. And so we still learn, you know, like soil science and the rainwater runoff and the water pollution chemistry and all these things, but it's all interconnecting like puzzle pieces into this master thesis at the end, which is the complete eco city, because nobody is seeing the ultimate destination and all of the interconnections between these different things that we study. And she was like, that's a great idea, Katie, really, really cool. And whatever, like I left and graduated and nothing <laughs> happened. Um, but it's like the education, when you start with the vision, like this is what we want to create, a whole city that is completely in synchronization with nature. There's a lot of engineering and science to go into that. And then you reverse engineer the education that you need to learn in order to get to that vision is a totally different style of education. And it's really mm -hmm. practically focused. Then let's just learn the discrete puzzle pieces and all the puzzle pieces are scattered. And then maybe at some point in your life, we'll figure out how to kind you of- have like to connect together. them when you're 40, right? Is that- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think that it's a really, um, anyway, that's just my thought of how to do environmental education with a, a kind of like a master goal that's very sort of real life focused as the, um, the end point and all of the detail you learn in, in the process of that. Um, but where my own personal work really fits into education, um, which is that I discovered this thing a few years ago called the value action gap. And I was quite late in my career. Like I was in my, you know, almost in my mid thirties when I, when I figured this out. And it is that education doesn't necessarily lead to people taking action. And this is studied by behavioral scientists like over and over again. There's a great Wikipedia page you can look up called the value action gap. It's also called the information deficit hypothesis. And a lot of climate scientists will think this they'll be like, oh, if people just knew more about climate change, if they were just educated about it, then people would change. 
And so if you are an education person and you are setting out to do education, or maybe you're an activist and you're setting out to do education, you will be successful in educating people. Like, look, let's learn about climate change and then people learn. But that does not necessarily lead to action. And action design and educational design are two completely different things. So if you're trying to do education design and your whole goal is just education and it really is, doesn't matter what actions people take after that, then you can just go forth and do some interesting educational design. There's a lot of fun stuff you can do there. But if your intention is to actually get people to take action, which might be to contact a politician or to swap over their air conditioning unit or switch to an electric vehicle or get rid of their car and ride a bike and stuff, like you cannot use the educational lens to get them to do that. You need to look at it as a behavior designer and behavior design has a completely different architecture of uh, a toolkit to use. You go into your toolkit, how do I create behavior design? There's like 20 things that work, that are tested and proven that get people to act. And those things don't have much in common at all with an educational process, like your sort of textbook on climate science or your right, documentary right. or the book or whatever. They're completely different. They almost have nothing in common at all. And this is what I talk about to people all the time is value action gap. Don't assume that educating people is going to work. It probably won't work. We need to be using the behavioral science toolkit to actually get people to act. And you can get by with very little education and emotional concern. Like people don't even need to care that much about the environment. They don't need to know much about it. And you can still get them to take action if you design it properly. And we really need to start thinking like behavior designers and like environmental psychologists if we want to create change. And this is my current fascination. I read the academic papers. I practice it. I have a podcast on it. I'm all about yeah. the environmental psychology of action now. I think it's the next big thing to try and like share through the industry. You know, I agree with you. And that's why you're here on the show, because I wanted to pick your brain more about this. I see that a lot with the students that I teach. You know, there's 20 students in a class. We have a climate science related project and graduation happens. And there's like two or three that are out there really motivated because they're, they wanna do something about it. But what about those other 17? So I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned toolkits, you mentioned uh, thing resources that you can use. Where do you find these? Are these something that's in your book or that you write about on Medium? Where can us educators get more information on this so we can we can do better in, in our work. Well, I put it all together in my book, How to Save the World. Like it's a full design process to follow. It's like a 10 step design process of which all of these behavior and gamification techniques are, are in that. And it goes into the theory of why it works. So it's, it's like a textbook with exercises to follow. So it's, it's a perfect tool for educators to use as a project or if you're holding a workshop or something, it's completely designed for that um, for that type of that type of thing. Yeah. And I put it out on my on my Instagram little tutorials and on my medium page and and on my website, katiepatrick.com. Um, but I can go into what those things are now, like the process. Can you share a few? Yeah. Yeah, in another um, another um, nutshell that I will keep not too <laughs> too big, probably. Uh, so I just compensate for my big nutshells with talking really fast. I'm not sure if it, if it works that well. Um, <laughs> but the first thing to do, so we start off by looking, okay, just educating people and trying to get people emotionally concerned, probably not going to create action. So first we, we accept that. 
And now we move to what does create action. So the number one thing is we first start by looking into the data. What data do we have to work, work with? Can we show people feedback loops? Um, really looking into the numbers, you know, like turning lights off, especially in the day, doesn't have a big carbon impact, but thermostats do, especially cars. Like really sort of look for the low hanging fruit, right? And again, this is not just about individual change. This is about getting everybody around us to change or trying to create like social influence networks as well. So that's called like the theory of disclosure. Like just put the data out there somewhere. If you can't do it electronically with sensors and with a digital screen, you can do it by hand. Like you could have a group of people, for example, in your classroom, you could get everybody to figure out what their kilowatt hours were for the day. Often you can log in to your electricity provider and get the data. And then you can have everybody turn up and then put everybody on a leaderboard from like top to bottom, right? You can work out what the carbon intensity is of the grid and you can just multiply that by whatever that number is. And then you could say, hey, everybody, we're going to do um, a, a design, use the word design to make it sound fun, a design experiment where we're going to um, try and figure out where all those kilowatt hours came from. And then we want to do design interventions into all of these behaviors and do something creative and fun with your great design skills to figure out how to intervene in your home to get that down. And then we're going to come back next week and we're going to do the leaderboard again. And then we're going to measure the progress. We'll do one leaderboard top to bottom and then we'll do another leaderboard that measures the progress everybody has made. So if someone's like uses a lot of energy, they can still do well because you want to be, you know, ranking people by progress, not necessarily their net score. And then, you know, create a discussion and then talk about iterations, talk about problems, you know, is it technical? Is it behavioral? Sometimes you can just get like a like a sticker and put it on your fridge or something can be like one thing. Your stuff doesn't have to be high tech, right? So no. that could be a way of doing education. It's like design education that's both interesting in terms of the kilowatts and then it's designy because you're asking people to design solutions. Um, but then it's also really behavioral. So you're tapping right into the, the behavior rather than just learning you know, climate science um, from a textbook. But you've got, yeah, the disclosure of numbers, you want to use feedback loops. So like when people see their numbers, just like a Fitbit, that in itself creates change. And it can be anywhere between like 10% up to 50% just from seeing the numbers. And then what gets really exciting is when you compare people to each other, like I just mentioned with the leaderboard, when something says, I hear you do 20% worse than everybody else. And telling people they do worse than average is much more powerful than telling people they do better than average. So the people that are like on the lower <laughs> part of the, are gonna probably get psyched and probably change more than the people who are doing better. Cause they'll be like, well, I'm already doing well. Why do I need to, why do I need to change? You want to use reward systems. Like if somebody does something good, you give them a smiley face. It might sound silly, but smiley faces are actually a really powerful way to to um to affect people. Something that says that. good job, thumbs up, right back to the primordial part of the brain. You know, like if you get like a hundred compliments and one person says something mean, it's like you we have this primordial one? this primordial system of feedback of faces to us being happy for us or sad for us. So if you get like if somebody put like a just a, a frowny face on your Instagram post, you'd probably get really upset by that. If somebody did that for you, like, what an asshole. Like, I'd probably be upset for like an hour. It's like, so, and if someone puts a smiley face, you feel good, right? And one right. frowny face is a lot more powerful than many smiley faces, right? So these things might sound silly, but they're actually very powerful behavioral mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So you can do a lot more with an emoji than you can potentially do with a climate science textbook. If wow. emoji is okay. like, well, well positioned. This is good advice. Um, uh, so in your terms of your, you know, design students taking on these actions, you know, maybe something for a week is like to give your roommates or your family like smiley faces or frowny faces and then just like monitor the reactions that they that they have. 
Um, so yeah, comparing people is super powerful. Once you get data, once you get a feedback, we can compare people. And most of my um, entrepreneurial work is all based around trying to get these comparative, comparative um, scores. You know, just giving people a goal. Like your goal might be to get 50% of your, um, 50 is probably not a good number, maybe 90% of your calories from plant-based foods. Often asking people to go vegan is too much for people. Mm -hmm. You can ask them to get maybe 50%, 90% of their calories. So, you know, monitoring people's, um, the ratio of the calories, you know, really starting to understand um, how to, you know, nudge people away from eating meat and dairy. Um, and, it, you know, just give, but, but the point was giving people an explicit goal. You know, this is the carbon and we do that with one of my projects energy lollipop and it's quite powerful when you say your mission and you say it like a video game like hi there there's this problem and we're going on this quest and your mission is important in this quest is to reduce 50 percent of the carbon emissions from your home and people are like okay got it uh which is quite a different mental landscape to just randomly do good things for the planet so giving where's, these, where's, where can goals. we find energy lollipop? Sorry to interrupt there, but energy lollipop. Oh, no problem. Really just go cool. to the Chrome store. You haven't seen it before. Go to the Chrome store and you type okay. in energy lollipop. Just type in energy lollipop Chrome store into Google. And it's this really great little uh, Chrome extension. And it shows you the carbon emissions of the California grid in real time with Amazing. color. Very simple. No crazy metrics about wind and solar and coal like energy people like to put out. Right. Um, and you can just click on it, you know, through the day. Uh, and now, yeah, I've got, like, I understand the exact carbon load profile of the grid throughout all of the year now. Like, I'm like, hot days, weekends, cold days. I've been clicking on it for a year. And, um, yeah, it's really, it's great for your um, carbon literacy. And I definitely do feel really bad using electricity at night when the grid is really high. And I'm always like, but the only thing I do now is now I often leave lights on in the day because I'm like, oh, yeah, it's all solar powered anyway. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, but maybe it doesn't matter. Um, oh, another gamification technique that's really cool is using emotive animals. I just had this guy on my podcast who tests, he gets this mechanical cat that smiles at you if you save energy and frowns at you if you use too much energy. Cats are powerful. Um, you know that, right? Cats are super powerful for change, right? Are they like in just, you mean kind of like spiritually? Or? Yes. Yeah. Just like that. <laughs> it works. Oh, you mean like like the Chinese cat is like with its arm thing that any you know. cat, any cat will make it happen. All right, right. Well, this cat was really profound. It actually got a forty-seven percent reduction, which is the highest that I've seen in any of the studies I've looked at. Um, and so what they're doing is calling this thing an um, an empathetic character gauge. So it's like a gauge, you know, like a dial gauge that says whether you're doing bad or good, like a speedometer but is via the face of an animal that's like smiling or frowning, depending on your performance. And it's way more powerful than just using numbers or gauges or, um, you know, notifications. So I would encourage everyone to figure out how to make an animal that changes its expression based on your uh, performance. Uh, really exciting stuff hasn't really been implemented anywhere. You know, you can like track progress. Where are you going? You're tracking progress through a game, through steps or levels using novelty, using storytelling, like I mentioned before, like starting people on an onboarding process. It's like, this is where we are, this is where we wanna go. We're bringing you on the journey, will you come with us? And then isolating those very specific tasks. There could be five or 10 things that you want people to do and you're bringing them through that journey and then it has like an end. Okay, we have now succeeded in decarbonizing your home or your workplace, oh. great, great job. Um, you can use color, red is good, green is bad. 
uh, adding a color spectrum to data is very powerful. It might sound obvious, but not always done. You can use maps. Maps are incredibly interesting ways of showing progress as well. Like if you're needing every house or every building or every school to do something on a map, you can present it that way. You can use pledges, asking people to give a promise, like writing down, like, dear Eric, I promise that I will um, not use any plastic for the next week. And then I give you that. And now if I screw that up, I will feel like a really bad person, like I've lied to you. And that's a very powerful psychological mechanism. Wow, okay. They're called, they're called commitment devices in the yeah. psychological literature when somebody, because trust is so deeply um, important to our social relation. You don't have trust, you don't have anything, right? So it's just getting into these very deep psychological mm -hmm. cores that get people to, to do stuff. It's, it's quite remarkable actually, just getting somebody to write something down on a piece of paper. I've done it with a bunch of people just casually and then they're still doing it like years later. And I'm like, wow, wow. this really works. And all I did was just like ask somebody to do it at a party, like just randomly. I actually stopped doing it because it was so powerful. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I feel that you this is unethical now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think everybody should be using pledges because you do not need to do any computer work. Um, and you can use things like cues and chimes, like a red dot notification or a sound. Like, why can't you build something? If anybody likes doing computer stuff, do something that makes like a sound when the electricity grid goes up over a certain um, level of emissions. About 7 or 8 p.m. is when it spikes. So you could have something that just goes, ring, you know, or like a notification on your phone. Uh, I designed one thing for classrooms that showed indoor carbon dioxide. And uh, one of the people on the team said, oh, why don't we make it make a sound? You know, so it reminds the kids in the classroom to open the, open the window to get fresh air in. And I was like, yeah, chime, chime sound, you know? So it has a little red dot and it makes a chime. And now the kids know that this, mm. the indoor carbon dioxide is high and they should open, open the window. And, um, and my last point is our social norms which is just using language, like 83% of people in your neighborhood are doing it. So you're not being like, the world's gonna die, climate change is terrible, and you should do it because really bad things are gonna happen. It, that's not really the most powerful way to get people to do things. And it may even make people completely turn off. There's research, a reasonable amount of research coming out that's showing people climate doom just creates like a, a wall. Right, apathy. Like, it, <laughs> or it's not even, it's a shutting down. It's like, right. can't deal deal shut down uh so what you can do one and it's just a little bit of copywriting right you can just be like did you know that and you can even use stuff like everyone like it doesn't even really need to be accurate you can be like everybody in your neighborhood is switching to evs or like it's what everybody's doing you know like just stand, like copywriting that. yeah like it can just be like a tagline it doesn't need to actually be like research data and then you, you show images of the people doing it. So rather than showing the melting glacier and the polar bear, what you show is this like super cool hip family, you know, with their like EV and their bicycles and like everybody's going carbon free now. And then you're like, oh, are they? Because this idea that the group is going that way, you want to follow the group. So you want to create images that we can imitate, not images of what we don't want. We want images of what we do want that we can copy because humans will, we can't, we cannot help copying everybody around us. It's an unconscious mechanism for us to copy the group. So people will copy, even if they don't even know they're copying, they'll, everyone is, will be copying everyone. So the more images you can put up of the behavior you want everywhere, people will just adopt it. Like they can't, they can't help it, but to, but to adopt that. And so that's another reason why this, I'm against this climate doom messaging and yeah. 
this negative stuff because uh, it doesn't work and it can even go backwards. It can even get people to adjust to that being the norm. So not that people are going to be actively like, oh, let's like litter everywhere or whatever. But what you're doing is saying that this is normal. This is what everybody is doing. Like if you put a big picture of like a really polluting SUV with like smoke coming out of it, what you're doing is normalizing that, saying that this is what everybody, and you say like 93% of people drive polluting SUVs. So don't do that. Like, even though consciously you're like, oh, what an asshole with that polluting SUV. Unconsciously, the unconscious copying brain will just be like, well, if I drive an SUV, it's with a polluting SUV, it's okay because everybody else is yeah, doing 90, it. 90% of the people are doing it. So it's fine. Right. And um, that's basically it is all those toolkits. You follow that in a systematic process to try to change the numbers and bingo, you'll have a really great behavioral intervention that will most likely get people to, to change. Yeah, I think I'm, I really, I really believe this will work. I, I think about all the students that I've taught over the years and even now, and I don't know, I, the vast majority of them play games. They love to play games. And so um, why not use that as part of what they do in the classroom as design students, right? I mean, I'm, I, uh, I'm a runner and I don't usually cross train and bike and all that, but I've learned I need to do that. So I got a, I got a Peloton. And uh, I can tell you that um, I wasn't really interested in it until I started to seeing the metrics. And so looking at the numbers and saying, oh my gosh, I can do this if I just go a little faster. Or uh, so I, I was, I'm really addicted to like beating certain numbers, right? This is game, it's a game to me. And I could see that working in a very positive way, right? What if you're, instead of, it was, it's like Peloton for the planet, right? Like if you were doing something like you usually do exercise and that turns into something positive uh, and a positive change, right? Uh, you, could, you could turn that into a project potentially. So I really does like- Does the Peloton, oh, sorry, does the Peloton compare you to other Peloton users? Is it a oh, group yeah. dynamic? Yeah, I should explain that. Yeah, it definitely does. Like you can see, what other people are doing. And usually people will high five you and then they'll pass you on the leaderboard and you get all upset and then you try to pass them again and you <laughs> them virtually high five, of course. So it's, it's a competition, right? It's who can produce the most kilowatt, lose, uh, go the fastest, all this type of stuff. And um, I think that's a fun idea for a design project. So that, that kind of leads me into uh, my last question for you because um, this is what I ask all the guests uh, that come on the show. Uh, I want to put you into our shoes. You're a design educator uh, for the next uh, four to six weeks. And by the way, I think you'd be a great educator. Your projects are, or what you talk about, I think is super interesting. And I think the students would really, really enjoy working with you. So you're a design educator for the next four to six weeks. What kind of project or projects would you assign uh, the, the students um, in relation to the work that you do to um, create more climate action. Yeah, yeah. Well, my last podcast was all, you know, um, about experience design. Uh, well, not all about that, but um, with Jesse Shell, he was um, calling it, he's, he's a professor of experience design. And we talked about that in the context of uh, sustainability, which really honestly never comes up with environmental engineers and scientists. Um, oh, no. <laughs> well, I, 
I think the um the first well that's why we need people like us trying to get out there these other concepts that often are traditionally not not thought about when everybody's thinking about you know like parts per million and uh leaders of whatever um I think the first thing that uh is often not thought about when it comes to products and companies is the bigger context they sit in so if you're looking at making like a product everyone will be like say it's like a, a box or a, a toothpaste or even like a video game mm -hmm. they look at like the thing itself like let's look at like you know the materials that come from it this is a usual like sustainability way of doing things if you're making a playstation we just look at the actual plastic that goes into the playstation and the kilowatt hours that it draws and are our servers powered by solar solar panels and just looking at the product as this one discrete thing i think i i mean not that that's not important, it still needs to be done, but that's not what I specialize in. And I think there's a much bigger uh, um, and more impactful way to do it. So if I was uh, teaching a course, what would I call it? Maybe I would call it Fitbit for the Planet Design, the phrase I like to use, like or it. perhaps, you know, um, environmental behavior design, is that I would ask all the students to, which is more or less, you know, what I already do, um, ask people to choose a data metric. So we're not just going to focus on making the tube of toothpaste more eco-friendly, we're going to look at the bigger metrics. So it could be the amount of trees in your neighborhood, the amount of green roofs. It could be the surface temperature of your uh, of your town because roads and car parks get really hot and create an urban heat island. Um, trees don't get hot. So that's, that's a problem. Um, the kilowatt hours of the, the carbon emissions from kilowatt hours, the amount of gasoline that's being used in cars, you know, air pollution, it could be like water pollution. I would get people to choose a, a data set that they are most attracted to. And so that's the first principle of the design. And then we go through a process of looking at, well, how do we work with this data to get people to drive action? And so I do this behavior mapping workshop where we isolate who are the individual people that are going to be like involved in this system like it could be like a government agency or a um, you know like a parent or a homeowner or somebody who's at a school or somebody who sells cars like it could be be anybody at all and you map out who those people are and then you go through a process saying well, what's the cue that we want to get to them or the cue is like you know they're going to see something on instagram or we're going to reach out so these are kind of like the the marketing tentacles of whatever it is you're you're doing or it even could be like a chime right like the the kids in the classroom and then you know we look in and then you're like well okay what is the data sets we're working with so it could just be one thing like carbon emissions from a home or sometimes if you're dealing with something more complex like water there's actually there's like multiple metrics to work with or an ecosystem and then what is the action we want them to do? So once you've had a deep dive into the data, you should know what these actions are. They're not just like, oh, here's like like 55 eco tips. You know, you want to just be like, no, we try and get very narrow with the specific actions, which will emerge once you look in the data, what those actions are. And then once you've figured out what those actions are, then we go through all of the behavioral stuff that I just um, went through earlier, which is, okay, like, how do we show the data to people? How do we add, you know, comparison? How do we compare stormwater drain to stormwater drain? If you've got a lake and you've got five stormwater drains coming out, you know, holding lectures telling you the lake is polluted isn't necessarily going to get you there. Let's go to each stormwater drain, test it, give them a ranking, put the stormwater drains on a leaderboard. It'd be like worst stormwater drain down <laughs> to the best stormwater drain, or maybe the other way around. Um, and then you can give them like a star rating, you know, you know they were like you know one star down to five stars 
and the the action that you might want to be is like I'm not sure exactly how the pollution gets in maybe it's like oil from cars like going down after rainfall or people putting paint down um, it could be a factory nearby or something that you need to get um, you know better environmental regulations on I don't know what it, anything whatever so you're putting like a disclosure then you're putting a star rating then you're putting that out there maybe you make signs maybe the and this is where the design comes in it's like okay going through this process you're like okay well the first step is data disclosure how do we get it out there let's all paint a sign right um and another one you know you understand or oh, cognitive load let's not over design it we want to kind of under design it make it simple so we're all very used to these like um fire dials with like is it smoky the bear who yeah, has yeah. fire dial yeah you know from like very scary fire you're gonna die you know all the way to green like there's no fire yeah. so people are used to these like public dials of color so you can go and paint one you probably don't need to ask anybody's permission hopefully the school will have some supplies and then you go and put one you take a photograph it send it to the local paper um and then make a little mock website single page this is what we're doing put it on instagram and put the message out there you know why is and then everyone's like why is that stormwater drain so much more polluted than all of the others <laughs> um but anyway so you're going through this like this process of like what is the action so then you figure out what the action is and then you go well how do we prompt people to take this um this action and using all of these types of design kit that we've got like how do we make it novel do we need a leaderboard are we going to track progress um you can even use things like behavior charts like you know, like a sticker chart for when you've got a kid and then you get like 10 in a row, like right. for somebody who is maybe like really um, going plant-based is really hard for them. I mean, creating a sticker chart and you don't need to write any code, 10 day plant-based challenge, right? Like <laughs> super easy, low tech and you know, that stuff really works. And once somebody's done a, a 10 day plant-based challenge, they probably could, you know, for the next decades they're alive will have an impact, right? So you can do simple things like that. Um, and that's another thing like a design student can come up with, um, you know, like the creature that we thought out. Maybe, you know, if you're looking at stormwater drains, you don't have Smokey the bear, you have like, I don't know, like Sylvia the the fish, you know, and then Sylvia the fish is like on the Dakota drain, she's like really miserable, like blah, covered in like, you know, sores and looking really sick. And then there's like the happy fish, you know, for the good stormwater drain. So when people go past it, it's really salient. You're like, oh my God, there's a star rating, there's numbers, there's a color, it's got like a red face on it. The fish looks really sad. I was like, oh my God, we've really got to do something about this. There's like something really bad going on in this area. Um, and, uh, you know, you can map it out using maps. Maybe you can use pledges. And maybe if there's something that you need to get a lot of people to do, like something like oil leaking from cars, it's not. Like something like a factory there's like a lot of individual behavior to get to do then you can use something like a pledge instead of just educating everybody on it you can go out to everyone and saying would you commit to this pledge of getting your car tuned up because there's a stormwater drain with this really bad looking cartoon fish that's doing in really bad shape um you want to help the fish be happy and then get people to write down this promise yeah every six months i don't know that much about cars but like i don't know every six months you get the engine looked at or whatever yeah, the oil change and then everything. the look for oil leaks um and then uh get them to write that pledge they will most likely do that if they write it down and give it to you and then you can like photograph everybody's pledges and put it on instagram and then people are like oh and then you can even give people a little identity that's something i didn't mention like a sticker that's like i'm a an oil change pledge person now so you give people like a name <laughs> right they get a badge 
Yeah, yeah, they did this with getting people to turn their car engines off when they were picking their children up. They asked people to pledge, but then they gave them like a little sticker to put on their dashboard. It was like, I'm a I'm a um, engine turn off pickup kid person now. <laughs> um, and it really worked. They got like 70% of the parents to switch their engines wow. off, but wow. very simple, low tech interventions, right? So if your design students all have wonderful graphic interfaces, inter graphic design skills, they can go through this whole process of looking at this data, applying all these behavioral mechanisms, and they're completely empowered to make it look amazing. So instead of having all the engineers do it where it will look ugly, you can get your <laughs> students to do the whole process and they'll make it look amazing. Yeah, they will. Um, but instead of, you know, if they're not using those tools, they could just come up with really visually wonderful stuff that does not have the behavioral interventions at all. But when they use these tools, they could have we're all really working for behavior, but then looking amazing as well. And um, it's just so much more creatively enhancing for a creative person to think like, well, wow, how would I make an outdoor sign? Like, how would I design a pledge? How would I design a star chart? How would I would design something to sit on the fridge? Like what would be the ultimate fridge reminder sticker to get somebody to do something? How would I get people to work in groups? How would I get people to copy each other? And then there's just, there's just so much more tools in the toolkit to design for as a creative person then if you just like, okay, got to design something beautiful for climate change now or interesting or scary, you know, you just don't have as much to work with. Um, anyway, so that's what, that's what I would do. Um, and you can use my, my, the book I wrote, How to Save the World is more or less a system to go, to go through that. That sounds like a really cool project. And I, I hope that people who are listening uh, might try it in the fall or whatever semester. Um, and, uh, and they can uh, talk about it on our Instagram page afterwards to see how it goes. Uh, Katie, it's been uh, fantastic having you here. And uh, before we go, I want you to give an opportunity to uh, tell our guests where they can find out more about you. Obviously, your book, How to Save the World. Uh, tell us where we can find you on social media and online. Well, the best thing to do is to sign up to my website, katiepatrick.com. And I have a lot of free resources once you sign up that you can get that sort of will help you along this journey. I'm really active on Twitter. It says Katie Patrick, K-A-T-I-E, how you spell my name on Twitter and also on Instagram. Um, and, you know, feel free to message me on LinkedIn, I'm really active on uh, LinkedIn and love uh, chatting with people. And my podcast also called how to save the world so it's easy to find but i definitely recommend people to read through the steps in the book i mean it has a um a life-changing effect on some people if they've been going in the the wrong direction the value action gap direction i didn't realize that like i get people emailing me quite often being like i shredded my whole project and started again reading your <laughs> your book or like i had like a completely earth shattering like oh my god what am i doing moment and then started again off much more sound principles and um that's really wonderful to see they're always a bit shaky a bit like like kind of like you 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 momentarily ruined my life um but then I'm like no this is good this is good you're going in the wrong direction and so um yeah I don't for anyone who's interested in design and climate change it's just a really good framework to um make sure that you're making a real impact well thanks again Katie and I'm, I'm happy that you were able to take some time out and, and talk with me today thanks it's been fun Eric Thanks for tuning in today to Climify, but don't leave just yet. I've got more goodness for you coming up. Music.
as the pandemic has really affected our friends in the performing arts, where they're unable to book shows, tour, or sometimes even get into a recording studio, I thought I'd highlight one at the end of each of our episodes. Since this is a podcast for designers, the musicians featured on each are also designers. Well, I'll turn it over to our first artist to explain who they are and the reasons behind their music. Hello. My name is Joshua Singer. I'm an associate professor at San Francisco State University, where I teach graphic design and promote undergraduate student research. Um, While I was trained as a musician and spent my youth playing in dive punk clubs in New York City and San Francisco, I've only recently returned to making music um, in in the small slivers of my spare time, often as a joyful form of procrastination from the many other things at hand at any moment. I've always been a believer that music and graphic design, and typography in particular, have a lot in common with their shared logics of rhythm, contrast, counterpoint, timbre, and tone. If you Google me, you can find some of my work on Behance and academia.edu.
Thanks for listening to Climify. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To catch all the latest on Climify, you can follow us on Instagram at Climify Podcast. Climify is part of Climate Designers. Learn more at climatedesigners.org slash edu.